I'm not going to, but if I asked for a show of hands, I wonder how many of us could say, hand on heart, that we have faithfully kept every promise that we've ever made. Would any of our hands be up? Probably not. There's a story told about C.S. Lewis that as a soldier in the First World War, he vowed to a dying friend that he would take care of his family. And this he duly did over a period of many, many years, sometimes in the face of a certain amount of ingratitude from the grieving widow. And so in these passages from John, we're looking at words spoken by Jesus to his first followers and through them to us before his crucifixion. Promises and instructions. Some of these passages, for instance, will look at the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so here we have a promise of eternal life through Christ and only through Christ and a promise of works that believers will be able to do through him. This is spoken by Jesus in the context of the Last Supper to disciples who are frantically trying to process where their master's mission is taking them. Not to worldly triumph, but seemingly just to failure and death. But with the benefit of hindsight, they were later able to preach the risen Jesus and walk in his life. And so the resurrection shows us too how much we can trust in these promises. Because this is a world full of promises, isn't it? Promises made by politicians, by lifestyle choices, by philosophies, by products that are advertised to us. Promises made by people to each other. Some are kept, some are not, but none of these promises are eternal. The promise of eternal life that Jesus goes on to give us here is not just a vague hope, but a certainty to found our lives on. When he says in verse 2, if it were not so, I would have told you, in the Greek language, he's using a word that denotes uncertainty and saying, don't be like this. Don't live in uncertainty. Don't doubt this. He's told his followers that this is a certainty and he'll prove it by rising from death and again to all of us when he returns. And that's why in verse 1 he's told us not to be troubled about this. You believe in God, he tells them, believe also in me, trust also in me. And so this is more than just an invitation to acknowledge intellectually that God is there. But again, in the original language, he's asking us to trust him completely, to be motivated by him, to trust our spiritual well-being to him. And we can trust him here for the same reason that he goes on to tell us that he is the way, because he too is God. He's the one who elsewhere in John tells us, I and the Father are one. And before Abraham was, I am. A direct identification with the name by which God had revealed himself to Moses. My father's house has many rooms, he tells us in verse 2. 
When Jesus was born, there was no room for him in the inn, no room in the hearts and minds of those who were supposed to understand the prophecies about him. But there's room in heaven, room in his kingdom, for all those who trust in what he has done to take away our sin. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me. The message version puts it like this. There is plenty of room for you in my father's house and I'm on my way to get your room ready. And so this is a very personal promise, isn't it, to all those who trust in Christ. Jesus has redeemed us before God by paying the price for our sin. And after the cross, he will rise from death, now has risen, and return to heaven so that one day we will all be home with him. A lot of Jewish thinkers at the time believed that a person's degree of blessedness in eternity was somehow directly linked to their deeds on earth. And there is some truth in this a little bit because we know that Jesus does talk about eternal rewards. But the foundation is God's grace to us in Jesus. And that's why in verse 6, he assures us that he is the way. All the challenges that the New Testament gives us about how we live in the light of God's grace are to help us stay in the way, help us keep our eyes on him, and help us to help others to do so too. But the way itself is Jesus. Who he is, God made man, and what he has done. Man, created by God, has fallen away into sin. Justice was needed for that wrongdoing. Jesus, who was perfect, has done what none of us could do. Lived perfectly and given himself as a ransom to restore us before God, atoning not just for our deeds, but our fallen humanity itself. And that's what makes him unique. And that's why he's the way, the truth, and the life. Later, when Jesus stands before Pilate, he says again that he has come to bear witness to the truth and that everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. Many of us can have truth or know some truth, but only Jesus is truth. And in a very relative world, that challenges us, doesn't it, about trusting in him alone. But the reward of that is that he is also the life. Back in John 10, he's told us that he has come, that his people may have life and have it to the full. And that means the promise of eternity that he's already spoken about in this passage, but also that in this life there's a peace, an assurance, and a joy that only comes from him, a strength in all of life's difficulties, because this never promises us a trouble-free life. In a fallen world, that's not going to happen. But it's giving us a promise that real life is fulfilled only in him. In Matthew 16, he tells us this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And that's not just for those who gave their physical lives for the faith, 
but a challenge and a promise that real life is found only in following and serving him and his kingdom. And so his followers are clearly still trying to puzzle this out in very physical terms. He tells them in verse 4 that they know the way to the place where he is going, to which he gets the response, they don't know where he's going, so they can't know the way. He's already kind of told them the where, but they still struggle to see beyond the immediate. If you've ever set out to uh, go somewhere not knowing the way, uh, especially if it's somewhere very important, you'll know how daunting this can be. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in which a dark lord wants to reclaim a ring of power. And the heroes of the story know that they have to take it to a place where it can be destroyed so it can't be used for evil. So there's a big council as to what to do. And Frodo, who's a hobbit and they're a quiet little race with bushy feet who mostly just think about dinner, is starting to realise that He's the one who has to do this. And the book says this. At last, with an effort, he spoke and wondered to hear his own words as if some other will was using his small voice. I will take the ring, he said, though I do not know the way. And if you've read the book or seen the films, you'll know that what follows from this are many hazards and wars, many battles with self to get to where they have to go to. That's the way they have to travel. And so, though we are journeying to our final destination, heaven, and that journey is often far from easy, we can only make that journey at all because of what Jesus has first done for us. And that's why no philosophy or lifestyle can be the way. Ultimately, it has to be Jesus himself. And we come to the Father only through him. And so the challenge here is to live enjoying the good things of this life, but conscious too that our real life is eternal. And that's a challenge when day by day we're confronted with choices about how we respond to things, how we treat people, how in life's often frantic busyness we manage to prioritise time with God. Jesus challenges us too that we can seek truth and fulfilment in many things, but in the end, what we're all searching for is only fulfilled in him. And so in verses 8 to 10, as Philip asks to be shown the Father, Jesus reiterates the absolute unity between him and God that he speaks through the Father. And then in verse 11, he challenges them. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles or a lot of translations say works themselves. Because a lot of commentators and translators think that he's not just referring to to his miracles here. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus tells us that whoever believes in him 
will do the works he does and greater because he has gone to the Father. And he then promises us that whatever we ask in his name will be granted that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And commentators sense a need to unpack this with a certain amount of care because taken at face value, it can open huge cans of worms about why some prayers may not be answered or at least not seem to be in the way or time frame that we expect. So how is this promise fulfilled? No doubt a part of the fulfilment of it is in the miraculous. The thousands converted at Pentecost, the miracles of Acts, miracles wrought by others since, the great revivals of church history, all of them brought about by God answering prayer, the way that the church always survives great persecution. We can see that now in places like China and Korea. The miracle that is each one of us coming to faith. But in Corinthians, Paul warns us that miracles aren't the whole picture because not everyone will do them. And he says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healing, to another miraculous powers, and so on. There are different gifts, different things that people will do. But Jesus says here that all, not just the apostles, will do his works and greater. The commentator John Piper offers us one way through this, and he argues that the clue here seems to lie in what Jesus is telling us in verses 11 and 12. That for those struggling to believe in him, the works that they need to see are not just the miracles. Yes, those are important, but miracles alone didn't keep people alongside. But all the things he did that helped people to believe. The story of the woman at the well wherein confronting a lost soul with her past He gave revelation and uh, healing emotionally and psychologically worth shouting to everyone about. The healing of the woman with the issue of blood wherein singling her out from the crowd, Jesus not only heals her physically but vindicates her faith before others. So the works that all believers do are the ways in which God helps us to shine his light before others, to speak his word to people, the love that his people have for each other, the choices that help us stay true to Christ. And they are greater, Piper and some other commentators argue, because whereas up until the cross, everything has been by anticipation of a salvation promised for the future, all of us who live and follow Jesus after Pentecost live in a time when God's promise to redeem his people has been fulfilled and his spirit has been poured out upon us all. And all we wait for now is the final fulfillment that verse 3 points us to, the return of Christ. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. 
And as we seek to carry out his will in the world to make him known, to show his love and grace to people, we can ask for whatever we need to do that and he will answer. So, we're not being promised here that we can all go walking on the Wentham tonight and it'll all be fine. But this passage does promise that our Saviour, who himself is the way, has gone to prepare a place for us in eternity and is equipping us with everything that we need to do what we need to do along the way. He's our comfort and our strength in everything. When we're facing pain or bereavement, he's our life. When we're wondering where to find truth and fulfillment, he and he alone has shown us who God is. When we're doing what he's called us to do, he's our wisdom and our strength. And as the Father is revealed to us and glorified in the Son, our prayers for those yet to find Christ, for the works of his kingdom, are eternally strong and effective. In our Father's house are many mansions. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And as he goes on to tell us, he's not left us orphans in the meantime, but left his spirit to strengthen and equip us. So perhaps we can think about, as we're being asked to give you some questions to leave you with, how does it help us to know that our real life is eternal?